Brilliant. So we uh, last last year we uh, we were in a series through the kind of autumn winter time called the ecosystem of God's kingdom, and we really enjoyed and just found it rich just sitting in in the kingdom of God, and we're we're kind of carrying on that theme uh, with a slightly different emphasis now as we go into this new year. So. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to hand over to Alice, and she'll explain, and she'll then uh, be speaking to us. So, Lord, I just want to thank you uh, for the privilege of being here, and thank you so much for um, the life that's in the room, and the stories amongst us of people uh, walking with Jesus, getting to know Jesus, and, uh, and, and the wonderful life it is. Thank you for that encouragement from Charlie this morning, and the time of worship we had. And I, I pray for this second half. We bless the children and the young people and all of their different groups. And we pray now that this is, uh, we want to, just thinking about a, a plowed field that's ready to have some fresh seed planted in it. We want to be like that plowed field that's ready to go. And we pray that, it, that as we look at the Bible together, that it teaches us that you, you give us some real valuable stuff to feed us and enrich us and bring us strength and health. Here we go. Yeah, I'm just going to give you four examples of different scenarios, and I want you to tell me who's the most powerful person in each of the scenarios. So you have an adult with a child before they can speak, maybe a a baby, a not one or two-year-old. That's scenario one. Scenario two is an adult with a young person with uh, quite complex additional needs. Um, Scenario three is an adult who the language... The country they're in, they can't say thank you in that language. And then number four, and an adult who can't, is fluent and articulate, sorry, in that language. Let's use English as an example, because it's a dominant global language. And number four, who's powerful where there's an adult and there's someone who's elderly and has forgotten and can't say thank you. So I've got four scenarios where the, the, there's two people, one of them can basically say thank you and know what they mean, and the other one, the baby, the young person with additional complex additional needs who may be able to say the words, they may not be able to, but they don't actually know what responsibility is or gifts are, so they don't know what it means to say thank you. The third person, they can't say it in the language because it's like their third or fourth or fifth language and they haven't learnt it, but they're in a country where that's the dominant language. And then the fourth is the person who is elderly and maybe has a diagnosis of something like dementia and can't remember how to say it anymore. Just talk in your groups who's the powerful person in those four scenarios. Okay, it's lovely you're having chats, because I did say talk amongst yourselves. So let's go through um, the first scenario, the little toddler or baby who can't say thank you as they've not learned to speak, and the adult who has power, the adult. Second one, there's an adult who can speak and does not have learning difficulties, and there is a young person who does and finds speech and understanding complex and doesn't necessarily know the meaning of the word thank you, even if they could say it, who has power. In the third scenario, who has power, where the dominant language is English, the, the, one of the people is very articulate in English, and someone who it's their third, fourth, or fifth language, and they haven't learned the word thank you yet. 
Yeah, and the final one is an adult, young, sort of a, a young adult with mental and physical health, so I should have said that, and then elderly person who can't remember how to say thank you anymore. Yeah, so if we go right to our last slide, that is the lens through which humanity reads the world east of Eden. We do it now, we did it in the Roman Empire, we did it in first century Judaism. We assume certain things bring power. Is that good news? What would be good news in that scenario? What's good news? Can you? Yeah. I actually am going to make a... This is my conviction about the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to go through ten talks this year. I'm speaking the second Sunday of every month this year, taking us through about ten verses a time of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're particularly looking at the first few this morning, the Beatitudes. But our framing lens... As humans, East of Eden is essentially the left one. Power resides with the powerful. So critical theory, I was trained in critical theory, as I did read English literature at university. Critical theory is calling that into the light, isn't it? It's calling out the narrative of oppressed and oppressor. We might be used to that, we might be used to that from... Um, its actual roots are in sort of Marxist ideology, whose roots itself was actually in the, in, in the ideas that were floating around in the Enlightenment a couple of hundred years before that. Well, roots were in a Judeo-Christian heritage that says in the Genesis 1, before the fall, that all humans made in the image of God are to rule. So we come to this position now where it's complex, because on the one hand, we're like, that actually in reality is where power is. Some of us like that, some of us don't. Obviously, the, the, the movement around critical theory is to call it out so it doesn't happen. But the reality is, that's what we say, the reality is, power lies there. So I'm going to make a claim about the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, is when Jesus said, I've got good news, when he inaugurated his kingdom, he was saying, what you think is reality is no longer actually the way reality actually is. What is actually real has changed. In other words, you might think, if you were the adult on those four, that you have power and the other person doesn't. But that is not taking into account the existence of God, the existence of God of love, the existence of God who created every human in his image and is fiercely present to every human, particularly the most vulnerable, and is actually on the side of the most vulnerable. Actually, power lies with the other four. That's the good news of the kingdom. It's tangible, it's practical. And I'm going to give four examples in my own life where I absolutely fear the fear of God. When I had a baby, you know, when I, we had our first baby, I was shocked that God would give humans babies to look after. It's like, what the heck are you doing? Do you know what the human condition is? Do you know how, where I thought power lay? That was my first one. My second one is actually an adult now. It's my brother. He has complex learning difficulties. He has to have full-time care. He doesn't know what thank you means. He, he can say it because he's probably literate, about the seven, eight-year-old literacy, but he can't understand it. Actually, Chris and I were in the third scenario in China before, just before the launch of the smartphone in 2005. We were visiting my brother. There was a taxi in front and a taxi behind. We were in the taxi behind. My brother had given instructions in the taxi in front where to go. We were in the taxi behind and within one minute we were like, we can't read a single character of this script. We have no 
Mobile phones didn't exist, but no form of communication to my brother in the taxi in the front. We don't know where we're going because we don't understand anything. I literally still don't know what we would have done if our taxi driver had gone, well, I'll just go off here somewhere. I was like, okay, I know a sign for an aeroplane. Airport? But how would they know my family who are grieving the loss of Chris and I in the car behind? How would they know to go to the airport? Then the embassy. But how would they, you know, and I was literally going through this, and that's someone who's white who has a British passport and has some sort of different understanding, a different complex relationship with global socioeconomic power at the time. It's different now with China, but it was there, kind of mutual in about 2004-05. So I remember feeling, wow, we are lit- at a lot, some level, we're pretty powerless because I cannot access this language. And so much of my sense of power is being a, a, having linguistic intelligence. You can be intelligent as you like, but if you can't access the language that everyone's speaking, there is a vulnerability there. So the good news isn't that Jesus said, I'm calling out power and oppression, by the way, it's there. Sorry. The good news is I'm inaugurating a new reality where that's going to be broken. You get to be a prophetic people in the middle that live in the reality now, and then it's fulfilled, consummated in the age to come. So Christians do... do we live with the lens either on the left, we're all going to hell in a handbasket, so let's just collude with it a bit, syncretize a bit, have a bit of power, not worry about it because it'll all end, you know, anyway. Or we, we live in the, the age to come, I'm going to come to how we do this, by separatism. We're just, okay, well, let, no one else gets it, but I'm just going to form my own little club where justice, peace and joy can, you know. Or we can live in that excruciating but called prophetic zone of the middle where we live as if the left has been conquered and we're inaugurating the right before we fully see it. That's what I want forged in our community this year, forged in us, that we don't look through the lens of that one has power and that one doesn't. We understand where Yahweh is. When, I'm with, when I was with our, our first baby, when I'm with my brother, and, 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 the, and the, sorry, the fourth example was uh, Chris's grandmother who had dementia. And when I'm with her, on my own in a room with them, I feel the fear of God because he's with them, not with me. He is with me because he loves me, but he's with them. I meet Jesus with that older lady who has dementia. I meet him in those complex scenarios where people find it difficult to speak because they're, it's like their fourth, fifth, sixth language. I'm, I, I meet Jesus... When I'm with someone who doesn't know how to say thank you or what it really means. And I'm with, I'm, I'm with Jesus when I'm with a baby or toddler. Because that's where he is. That's the reality. There is no power differential in his eyes. That's what we're inaugurating. That's what we're prophetically anticipating. I'm not asking us to live in... We're not, sorry, not us. We as a community are not asking each other to live into this vision of human flourishing, the Sermon on the Mount, as if it's true. I want you to really hear this. We're not living into this vision of human flourishing as if it's true. We're living into this vision of human flourishing because it's true. Can you feel the difference? It's actually true. It's actually real. When we get to the Beatitudes, we'll see the blessed people. They really are the blessed people. Because we're not looking through that lens of 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 power differential east of Eden pre-Jesus' inauguration anymore. We're living post the inauguration of the kingdom that's going to last forever. 
And we get to be the prophetic people that show the world what it is to actually be human, how to live in real relationships with each other. So if we go back to the second second slide. So we talk, we've been looking at the ecosystem of God's kingdom and basically came to this moment of, gosh, we've got to look at the king. If we're going to understand the kingdom, we've got to look at the king. So we're going to be looking at what we, we has been commonly called his manifesto. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, uh, Matthew 5 to 7. Bill will also be looking at the end of the month, at like the book end of Jesus' teachings from John 14, when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So we'll be kind of balancing it with other gospel accounts of who Jesus is, Jesus is King. Yeah, just can't read that, can I? I can't do that thing. Do you ever do that thing on a, something that doesn't? You have to take my word for it. This is an intelligent publishing, non-fiction publishing house. I've said this so many times, but we're trained in secular humanism as if God doesn't exist and there's no spiritual realm. But the reality is no one lives in that. No one lives like it's true. And what I love about capitalism, it has a lot of flaws, but capitalism just goes to the lowest common denominator. We're we're people who like self-gratification. We'll get you anything, anytime, whenever you want it. What does capitalism do with the spiritual realm? It understands people still want to know about the spiritual realm. It, it, and you have these intelligent non-fiction publishing houses that have these amazing morning and evening journals doing all your psychological stuff. And right in the middle, it'll say, and if you want to, you can ask the elementals. You can ask, I, I'm directly quoting from a lovely journal. In, it's actually in the wave, if anyone wants to go there and look at a journal or surf, or watch surfing, because it's a heck of a lot cheaper than surfing. (laughs) Yep, that was a few summer trips, wasn't it, Becca? Well, I think you were actually, were you surfing? Not you. I was like, let's go to the wave and watch surfing. That's a great day to spend in a summer holiday with with children. Anyway, um, I always am thinking about talks, as you can imagine, while they're watching the surfing. And in, so it's just in there, it's like a normal, like, you know, environment and it says ask the elementals if you want direction in your life ask the fairies the angels and the trees i am not kidding i'm not kidding that's where you go gk chesterton said i'm gonna actually i'll go to the next one first so Cambridge is supposed to be like a powerhouse of academic intelligence. So Waterstones in Cambridge is supposed to be the place where you really do get the clarity on this progressive age we've lived in, where we booted superstition out pre-enlightenment, and then we've now lived this enlightened life where there's no spiritual realm at all. This is a section called Spiritual Writing. There are hundreds of books currently being published on witchcraft, on how to connect with the spiritual realm, on how to access, direction, guidance, clarity, community. So while the universities can say what they like and train our children from the age of five that religion is just some cultural thing, what capitalism understands is there's something about spirituality. We crave the numinous. We crave connection. We crave oneness with something beyond humans with the divine. This is because it's a design principle. We're created to be in union with God. And if we're told God doesn't exist, we'll go somewhere else to find him. And we'll go anywhere. There's a proverb which says to the hungry, even the bitter tastes sweet. If you go to the next slide, um, G.K. Chesterton, fantastic. I quoted this last time, sort of moving into what we want to focus on today. When men 
choose not to believe in God. So this is like the beginning of the 20th century when people were kind of thinking atheism was cool. They do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in everything. Intelligent, thoughtful people are still craving direction and guidance to beings beyond the human, beyond the material. The reality is people aren't stupid when they do that. The enlightenment was a deception. There is no such thing as no spiritual realm. The spiritual realm exists and God exists. He's present to all of us and we are designed to be deeply loved and formed by him. So if we can't go to him, we'll go to a version of him that's accessible. Now, the big thing we've done is we've not only done that, but what we really want to focus on in in this year is we've made governments or ideology God. This is G.K. Cheston as well. It says, once abolish God, so again, beginning of the 20th century, the government becomes God. I just thought that was so prophetic and sharp. Unbelievably prophetic about where we try and find. If we're thinking, where do we go for financial security? Who should be providing for us? Who should be defending us? Who should be blessing us? We all think the state, the government. Like, when there's a crisis, we've, there is a God slot and the government ideologies have filled it. doesn't matter where we are in the world. is the assumption that, the, that something out there bigger than us, a.k.a. the state, should deliver for us. Because the governance, of course, is on his shoulders. Now, what Jesus does is he doesn't, um, he doesn't deny that. In fact, he uses incredibly political language and says he is fulfilling it. So if we look at the, lang- the kind of language Jesus is using when he says, he comes in, he says, change your mindset about what's real, repent, for the kingdom of God is here. He is not using airy-fairy language. He's not using, I'm going to be on a harp. If you want to join me playing a, you know, a tune on a cloud, I'm going to be there. He, when he says the kingdom of God, he means the messianic kingdom of a political entity that people actually live as citizens under. He is talking about a political reality. The word king is so hard for us to understand in terms of the ancient Near Eastern or the first century understanding of king. A king's word was law, a king's word was life. The king's dominion was reality. Whereas now, No, I'm just not going to have a commentary on the relationship between ancient understandings of kings and one in a constitutional monarchy. No, I'm just going to rein that thought in and just say our understanding of king is different to 2,000 years ago. So he also uses terms like Lord and Saviour. These were exact terms that Augustus, the emperors, were giving to themselves. I am Lord and I'm giving good news that my gospel of Pax Romana is going to spread so that everyone can flourish under me. He was using exactly the political terms. Good news, Evangelion, was the good news of the Roman Empire. It wasn't just, oh, good news. It was like specifically political. If you're under Rome... You will be in the mightiest empire on earth and everything will work out for you. And Jesus is making, and all his followers use the same language, a direct counterclaim 
Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus isn't Lord. Caesar isn't saviour, Jesus is saviour. The good news isn't Pax Romana, where, do you remember that diagram? It's all about the left-hand side. If you're powerful, I'm I'm, I'm pleased, because basically the fittest survive. The kingdom is actually the right-hand side, and we get to be a part of inaugurating it on earth as it is in heaven. So, it's so hard, it's so hard to think of a better term, because people say, Jesus is the president, Jesus is my prime minister, but really, kind of that's what he's saying. Jesus is our president, Jesus is our prime minister, Jesus is our governor, our leader, our mayor, whatever the word is that you find helpful in terms of governance and authority and leadership, that creates a concept of citizenship and momentum and identity and belonging and moving somewhere in this age. These are political terms in this age. Now, this year, the world, the half the world is going to elections. As you might know, there are 70 elections this year. I spoke about that before, which is absolutely unprecedented. You know when people go that, it's unprecedented since, like, Thursday in 2004, when records began, and you're like, it's not unprecedented! That's like 10 minutes ago, especially weather forecast. This is the coldest moment in June since three years ago when we had that Arctic. Anyway, the point is, it's a lot of elections this year. 70, 43 are deemed free and fair because, for example, things like Russian election. To have an election that's deemed free and fair, there has to be a level of protection over the individual vote, over intimidation and so on. Um, I actually think we are not sort of playing at this church business moment this year. I hope we haven't. I actually think I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't spend hours in a dark room looking at YouTube. No offence to those who do, but it's apparently quite compelling to, you know, give you a conspiracy theory or two. I'm not particularly scared person. I tend to frame things optimistically. I'm yellow if anyone wants to know on the colour me thing. Think we're close to war, a war, a world war. Just think we're, there's rumblings of war in the world. If anyone wants to hear more, there's a Rebuilders podcast by Mark Sayers, which is six mega trends to look out for in 2024. And I think he posted it at the end of, it's like December. Because I've been analysing the Palestine-Israel situation. I'm like, something's going on here. Something's going on here. yes. There are these horrendous things on the ground. But there are other networks forming and other alliances forming, and they have been forming. We talked about that utopian moment up to about 2008 in my last talk, where the financial crisis hit. But at the end of the 90s, beginning of the 80s, it was like Western liberal democracy and capitalist economies. We've hit this utopia. We, Christianity was like the last bit, and now we're free to be secular people, which doesn't mean non-religious, it just means religions behind closed doors. You can practice your religion for free, that's classic liberalism, but don't bring it into the public space. And we found this place. We can all go to our local airport, fly EasyJet to someone else and have a Starbucks somewhere and it's exactly the same everywhere and we're one global movement and community. And that was kind of the end of the Cold War, unipolar world, US was like in charge. And then 2008, financial crisis hit. We have Obama comes in. Um, and Paul said this, actually, which I thought was really sharp. Trump, the natural inheritor of Obama, eight years later. And you have political polarization. You have the rise of China. 
and you have the rise from 2003 onwards, uh, 2001, whenever Twin Towers was, but there's a kind of slow rise of the more militant Islam, and suddenly you have a multipolar world. You don't have a unipolar world. You don't have the West. You have the West is fragmented over the polarization. Uh, um, woke and anti-woke ideology, I hate those terms, but you know what I mean, it's just literally tearing, it's a civil war ideologically in the West, that, that also is kind of empowering these other kind of powers to rise up. So Russia has this vision to recover the Rus, the Russian people. That's part of, you know, the ideology behind the invasion of Ukraine. It's like there's this historic people, we want to recover them. India's having the same vision, kicking out, you know, just rejecting some of those Western values and recovering true Hindustan. China, of course, is, is strong and it, it can just do its own thing. And, 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 and Iran has become, since 40 years, we lived there when I was very little right at the end of the um, time before, and there's been a new regime that's been growing in power for 40 years um, of militant Islam. So you have these unlikely bedfellows, Russia, China, and Iran. Russia is aligned in terms of religion to Russian orthodoxy. That's a kind of Christian tradition. China persecutes both Christians and Muslims, anyone who threatens China and the state. And then you have, in, um, sorry, Iran, who has moved to militant Islam in its government approach, Sharia law. But there's a kind of movement of sort of unity, the unlikely bedfellows that always happens when you deconstruct who the heck went to war and why did they do that in the First and Second World War. They have a shared strongman leadership. That's why there's kind of an affiliation between Trump and Putin. There was a kind of shared, uh, sorry, shared strongman understanding of like this democratization of everyone, giving everyone a voice is so weak. Why are we doing that? The rise of the strongman. They have a shared hatred of the West, for better or worse, for right or wrong. Some of it, I, I, you know, as someone who I identify primarily as a citizen of the kingdom of God, but necessarily am shaped and formed by Western thinking. As much as I continually contend to be countercultural, it's hard to see the water you're born into and swimming in. So I get, I'm sympathetic towards some things in the West which drop, must drive people nuts, and then other things which I think are incredible privileges, but trying to be as objective as I can. But there's anyway, irrelevant of that, there's a shared hatred of the West, and particularly anti-woke. Like, that is massively mobilizing and polarizing this community at the same time as it's fragile in the West. So you have this fascinating cultural moment where power is being shifted from the assumption of the unipolarity of the states and any allies with the states to other leaders. Our knee-jerk reaction in the West could be, hang on a minute, we might be Democrats, we might be into peace and love and joy, but we're going to bomb the hell out of anyone who resists our Western way of thinking. And we might have a little bit of sympathy of that, those of us who live in the West, and identify some ways Western and want to continue to. We are not going to go down that route in the church. Jesus says a number of things, and one of the things he says is, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, bless those, because that's where the kingdom is. We need to contend for it now amongst us, 
so that the church is ready to be that vehicle of purity and light and revelation to the world that violence never works. It's a pragmatic advice for a community. This isn't, you know, nice ideals, but in the real world, actually, it does work. Like, if I have a gun and you don't, you know, who's going to win? Jesus is making a radical claim that reality, with God in the mix, is it the person who trusts him wins. That's where the winning side is. That's where the reality is. That's where the kingdom is. So when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, he's not just, he is talking about in this room are the people that wind us up and annoy us. We need to start getting the plank out of our own line, stop bashing other people and take the speck out of our own and deal with our own relationships here. Every single person in this room, we want to be able to look them in the eye and say, I love you, I'm for you. And anyone connected with this community, any of our friends and family, we need to get right in our relationships. Jesus says, as far as peace depends on you, live at peace with all people. There is a side of the street, the recovery movement's brilliant on this, where you can't, you're not responsible for someone else's stuff, but we are responsible for our own peace towards someone else. So before we are as a community can be the prophetic voice that says to the world, do not use violence, it never works, we have to be a people that our heart condition is pure love. He said it's not enough not to murder people, it's your heart. Don't even want to find them irritating or kill them in your heart. That's where it begins. It doesn't begin with a bomb, it ends with a bomb. It begins in our heart here in this prophetic community. So Emma and I are actually going to start a monthly prayer meeting, 8 till 9 a.m., first Tuesday every month. I know it sounds really like clueless, like the, the, move, the 90s movies, but we're going to pray for world peace. We're actually going to pray for world peace because I actually think we need to pray for it. Like rumblings of war, anything, there's a volatility now that's been building and building and really kind of came to the surface obviously in 2020, but that, that is genuinely fragile. There's genuine fragility in the world, and we, but we have authority to pray for peace. The reason we have authority to pray for peace is we're given it, but we're also contending to be people of peace. Like if I have anger and resentment in my heart, I don't know how the spiritual realm works. But I don't know how much I can then pray someone else is a good person. He seems to call out hypocrisy a lot in Matthew 5 to 7. So if anyone wants to join us or could pray in their own heart and minds, because that's a very specific time of the month, it's our, um, God, that sounds like a period. <laughs> My time of the month. Yeah. Anyway, that's first Tuesday of every month, Tuesday prayer day, prayer day. But if that isn't for you, just pray for peace. Just pray blessing on the individual leaders of these nations, blessing on Christian communities that we are aligned with reality, not unre- the unreality of it. It's just not real. It's just not true. Like, it doesn't work. It doesn't achieve the ends. I'm reading Pax by Tom Dominion and, and that kind of age of Pax Romana where they just literally use expansionism to try and, and they're just dissolving. And who's rising up? These Christian communities. They're just loving each other and not being violent because they can't be violent. They can't even afford violence. But they're the groundswell of the toppling of the Roman Empire. So... Um, when Jesus says the Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of Matthew, he's on a mountain. Now, mountains in the ancient world represent heaven and earth, where the gods are, where reality is, if you like. 
So when he stands on a mountain, Matthew portrays him as standing on a mountain. Luke puts him in a valley because Luke's doing something slightly different. Probably multiple times he preached this sermon. It's only 20 minutes, 100 verses. But Matthew puts it at the beginning because he's like saying, this is the manifesto of the kingdom of God. He's just said, Matthew 4, change your mindset for the reality of God's kingdom has broken through. It's good news. What you thought was the way the world was isn't actually the way the world is anymore. Get in line with reality and I'm going to give you a manifesto, Matthew 5 to 7. So that's what we're going to look through. Um, Scott McKnight, though, if we go up to the next one, um, he's a scholar. I think he's brilliant. He calls out three ways. Everything I've said, you're like, oh, it's a lovely idea, but. It's a lovely idea, but. Every, three ways that we tend to domesticate the Sermon on the Mount. Firstly, we're idealists. We, uh, we, just, we basically say it's lovely, but it's for the age to come. The second one is individualist. This hour, I've done it. I've absolutely lived by this. I've taken it as absolutely true. There are so many bits in it, and we'll come to it when we go. I literally have taken that exactly as Jesus speaking to me, and I've lived to it. But I've domesticated it, and I didn't realize until I was preparing this talk, because I've just made it about me. It's a bit easier than claiming it for a community, let alone the global three billion Christian community. But imagine if we were all doing this. We would see heaven on earth. We really would. He's not lying or joking. So we, I, I've domesticated it by going, I won't ask anyone else to go on this journey. I'll just do it myself. And then the third way is independence, separatist movements. I don't know much about the monastic movements, so I'm not going to comment on them. But it's that idea, because apparently they were prophetic countercultural movements at the time. They literally had to leave, go into the desert, and as a result, people were convicted and sort of came under their teaching. I don't know enough about it to comment I would say now, the equivalent now of sort of going, as I said earlier, we're going to hell in a handbasket, let's just set up our own little commune, is, not, is a domestication of our calling as a prophetic people to be on the cold face of humanity that Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount. We can do that, we're free to do that, we're free to make it personal, we're free to say it's in the age to come. But I think what he's actually saying is it's for now. Because the last one, if we go to the next slide... The last one, these are the kind of things he goes, the Beatitudes, your salt and light, fulfilling the spirit of the Torah, dealing with things like murder and adultery, um, turning the other cheek, loving your enemies, giving, praying and fasting in secret, um, don't worry about anything, don't judge others, take the log out, persevere in prayer. As you get to the right of the last image, he says, if you hear these teachings and put them into practice, you're like the person who builds your house on the rock, not the sand. When the storms come, your house will stand. Storms don't come in the age to come. He's talking about building a house now. He's not talking about me building my individual life. He's talking about communities of people building their lives on the rock because storms come in this age. And also, we all build houses. That's what he's saying. You build houses. But if you build on my teachings, you're building on the rock. And when the storms come, which they come in this age and they won't come in the age to come, you will build in such a way that you will withstand storms. The world won't go to war. You will be able to look everyone in this room and say, I love you. And I'm for you. So I'm just going to ask you in groups now to process together how have... I domesticated the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm going to finish, because this is a conversation I want us to keep having. 
I'm going to finish by just going, going to the Beatitudes. 20, 30, 40 years ago, we had very little content in faith or worshipping communities beyond what was given on a Sunday. But we had on tap community. Now we have on tap content. You can Google Beatitudes. You can listen to a podcast a day for the whole year and have different voices. But what we don't have is on tap community. What we're doing here is seeing it forged in community as if we actually believe this is true. Not, as I said, to live into it as if it's true, but to live into it because it's true. So this domestication conversation is not something we have in one minute. How are we domesticating the Sermon on the Mount? I am just going to say my two pennies worth on the Beatitudes and then we're going to close with worship. What I haven't heard anywhere is the beauty of putting the man in the manifesto. Our leader, Jesus, embodies these realities in his life. I don't understand the Beatitudes. There are so many different voices and ways of interpreting it. But what I do understand is I follow someone who embodied these realities. So I'm not going to say, bless the poor in spirit, for those of the kingdom of heaven. I'm just going to put the name of Jesus in every single one because we follow one who is worthy to be worshipped, whose kingdom we can trust, who calls us into him. He embodies these realities. He isn't a political leader who has a manifesto over here. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Bill will be pressing into that. It's in him. Jesus is poor in spirit. Jesus mourned. Jesus is humble. Jesus hungered and thirsted for righteousness. Jesus is merciful. Jesus is pure in heart. Jesus was the ultimate peacemaker. His blood was shed on the cross, making peace where there was hostility. And Jesus was persecuted to death because of righteousness. His is the kingdom of heaven, and he is our king.